Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Times studio. It is a brisk, sunny day here in Florida on February 4th, 2022, and I am honored to be joined in the studio today uh, by two great men who've got some great things to tell us. Uh, John Glowacki is the CEO of the Combat Control Foundation, and Michael Monica is the president of the Combat Control Association. We'll get into both uh, what those organizations mean and how they've come to be. Uh, but for right now, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the show. Love having you here. Thanks for having us here, Christopher. Appreciate it. So we're going to dive in, and maybe, John, you can take the lead. Uh, I, I would assume from kind of polling our listeners before this that uh, even those who are familiar with military and, and its branches are not very familiar with combat control. Maybe we could kick off with a bit of a history. Sure, sure. Thank you. And uh, yeah, we've been one of those you know best-kept secrets uh, for some time, but uh, coming more to the fore in recent years, certainly the last two decades. So combat control was, uh, you know, our, our history goes back to World War II, and I'm not going to go through the, the whole history lesson. It's more about recent history. I think we'd like to focus on, uh, you know, we call our birthday in January 1953, uh, the current uh, incarnation, uh, which predates you know, our brethren in the special forces and SEALs and, and their current incarnations. Of course, they have long histories as well. Um, the, uh, we were really born of the Pathfinder missions, I guess is the one thing I would say of those earliest day. Um, the Air Force has a very distinct mission regarding this, and it's, it's very complex. Uh, and it's evolved, and it depends, frankly, on the situation we're in. And one thing I would point out is this is not just about warfare, because combat control is one of the few, uh, you know, of our type where not only do we have extraordinary success and performance in warfare and in battle, but, you know, we, we've also supported humanitarian missions. Uh, you know, Haiti, for instance, is one of the recent examples. So while we had people fighting in Afghanistan, you know, we had people uh, helping people survive in Haiti. So a, a breadth of experience there. The short of what we do, you know, it, it's gone through different terms, and I'm going to rely on Mike, too, for the more current, because I retired in 2000. I'm the guy that, you know, stepped out of the time tunnel more recently because I had my 21 years, and then I had my business career, a little bit of, you know, time in, in senior government, and then I came back and really fully rejoined the community, and I'm doing a lot of catch-up. So Mike is the guy, you know, as, as he, when he retired, he was the most senior chief master sergeant uh, in, in special tactics, uh, you know, at that point. Um, the other part of the mission, on the one hand, we've got the, what we call the wheels down mission. That's, you know, whether it's airdrops or primarily air land, that's getting troops and, and uh, equipment and weapons into the battlefield and, and sometimes right into the battlefield. The other part of it's the call for fire mission. And that's where you've got the joint uh, terminal attack controllers that's calling in airstrikes, uh, naval gunfire, artillery, you know, and it's really a lot of people can do, frankly, a call for fires. What they can't do is the complexity because we have this air traffic control background where you do the three-dimensional thinking and you've been trained at it extensively. And so you can do these very complex operations. That's one of the things that makes us distinct. So now I'm gonna- I don't wanna interrupt. I think it'd be helpful sure. as you're explaining. This, this originates out of the Air Force, correct? The, the Air Force, this is the, this is the Air Force. It's an Air Force mission. Again, the Air Force came from the Army, you know, and things unfold and evolve over time as they have. So, but I'm gonna uh, turn to Mike and ask him to talk about, uh, carry on with the history and the once over about combat control, if I can. Yeah, I'd say it's a, it's a great mission. It's, it's a little 
challenging to uh, understand sometimes. So let, let's let's start off with a base of knowledge. The whether it's a battlefield or it is a humanitarian mission, they are three-dimensional environments, right? There's not just people on the ground. There are airplanes involved as well. And at the most basics of our jobs, what we do is we translate between what's going on on the ground to the people in the air and how to integrate them. That is the basic job of a combat controller. We are air traffic controllers by trade, so we can stack airplanes and we can sequence airplanes and all those other things. Uh, but all the real hard work happens in the planning cycle, right? So, you know, when, when Haiti happened and we went, okay, there was an earthquake down there, we need to get people in there. We immediately start going and planning, going, okay, what does it look like? What are we going to do when we get on the ground? How are we going to integrate aircraft? Where are we going to park them? How are we going to distribute all the stuff coming in for the people? The same thing happens on the battlefield, right? We go, whether we're talking airplanes to drop bombs or we're landing an airplane right, you know, close up to the front lines to, to get more equipment, beans, bullets, and, and people out onto the battlefield. Um, we're having those same discussions and, and our expertise is everything about the aircraft. So we are frequently on the ground with a different service, whether Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, or coalition forces, right? We've spent a lot of time with our partners in New Zealand and Australia and Canada and Poland and uh, Norway, all these other countries. Um, we, we literally attach anywhere from one to five combat controllers with those ground forces from those other either branches of other, other uh, countries. Um, and when you start talking about bringing airplanes into the fight, we are that link. Uh, we're that link from a planning perspective and we're like that link from an execution perspective. Uh, and that comes in many forms. Um, landing airplanes could be as simple as uh, we find a highway to land airplanes on and we uh, bring planes in to evacuate people or we bring planes in to, to drop off equipment. Or we could be jumping in with you know, the, the Ranger Battalion and going into full-on combat, uh, very similar to how we did in Grenada, Panama, and, and other parts of the world, you know, uh, post 9-11, if you will. So those are the types of things that we do. It's a great job. Uh, we, we add versatility to the battlefield and uh, a lot of great humans out there doing this work. That's an excellent overview. I, I appreciate it. I had the fortune to read Alone at Dawn, which we can cover a bit uh, later, but the description of all that work, most civilians who, who you know, read in the paper that, you know, we, we took we took an Air Force base or, we, you know, we, we you know, had to take back uh, as part of an invasion uh, an airport. You don't really think about that, right? That, well, if you're, you, you, the people on the ground may well resist you taking over this airport. It's not as simple as that. What I was most impressed by is kind of the speed and accuracy with which combat controllers both assess what's happening on the ground, take control of, of airports as needed. Uh, and then, you know, have have planes coming in within an hour uh, or, or under, which is kind of amazing when you when you think about it. And maybe you guys could expand on that a little bit of kind of what is the training that goes into all of that multi-level thinking, both three-dimensionally, planes in the air, not dropping bombs on friendly troops, dropping bombs on people that need it. Uh, maybe a little bit of color there would be helpful. If I could just, uh, I want uh, to defer to Mike on that, but if I could just make a fine point about that capability, um, you know, when I was on active duty, there was one occasion, I'm not going to get into specific names or anything, but uh, the force that we were assigned to uh, was uh, in another country briefing the U.S. ambassador on how they were going to get the American citizens and friendlies out if, you know, it was a bad situation heading toward worse. And, you know, the joint commander was there uh, with the immediate commanders. Our commander was one of them, the Army commander uh, and some others. And they go through the briefing of everything that would be, be excuse me, would be brought to bear 
to do this operation. And, you know, the natural question was, well, what if you can't get all that in? And the general looks over his shoulder, points at our commander. He says, well, basically we get one of his guys on the ground. We can start the whole thing. So when you've got one person who can start the invasion of another country and, you know, that's not, I'm not overstating the capability because we could literally have, you know, what a man can carry and have everything to set up, a, you know, a small airport, a, you know, a clandestine airport, but an airport nevertheless, as well as, you know, do the long range and, and point to point communication, as well as do the call for fires to, you know, help keep the bad guys away while you bring people in. That's, that's a pretty hefty capability. Absolutely. But to, to talk about the training, uh, Mike's far better qualified in the more recent uh, the state of things. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about what this means in the real world, right? It's, uh, academically, it's easy to kind of just discuss, but um, <clears throat> the first people on the ground in Afghanistan post 9-11, October 19th, was a couple hundred Army Rangers and 19 combat controllers and pararescue. And the reason that was built that way is because we didn't take over an airport. We created an airport. We actually found a space that we thought we could land airplanes. We parachuted in, we surveyed it in that period of darkness, and we landed airplanes that night. That was the first people on the ground. The last people out of Afghanistan were combat controllers. When all this stuff was going on in August and uh, you know, at the national level, we were making very poor decisions on how we were extracting people out of uh, country, the people on the ground actually doing that work were combat controllers. There were Marines there as a security force, but all of the chaos that was being managed was being managed by a team of combat controllers who were making sure that planes could get in and get out and we were getting the right type of people on those aircraft to get them out of there. Um, matter of fact, when the ground forces commander hit the ground, his, his response was, where's my combat controller? And once he found him, he said, you're, you're attached to me, you're with me the entire time because we need to make real-time decisions. Um, that is the power of having a combat controller with you. Um, you know, and it's the difference in the mission. With When you talk about things that go on in the special operations community, people get enamored with parachuting, diving, fast ripping, rappelling, you know, riding motorcycles. Those are all ways to get to work. It's what do you do when you get on the ground? And the fact is, is nobody else can do what combat controllers does. There's a small group of people that do it. It's what they're trained to do. It's their profession. Um, and we're lucky enough to be part of that team. And, you know, in the Combat Control Association Foundation, our job is to take care of those people. Um, so that's what we do. As far as the training, it's it's pretty extensive. Uh, in, in special operations, all the all the different disciplines, Rangers, Special Forces, SEALs, MARSOC, whichever, you know, it may be, are all very extensive pipelines. They just take a long time. You got to find the right people. You have to assess them and select them. And then once you go, yep, I've got the right person, then you invest in training them technically in whatever their job is. Uh, and when the basic base of your job is air traffic control, well, that's a 14-week school that you have to go through, mm -hmm. right? And then you go through all the other employment schools of jumping and diving and all those other things. And then at the very end, you put it all together in what we call combat control school, where you take all those disciplines you learned over the past two years and you put them together and you train on them uh, and then you get evaluated on them and then you graduate and then you go into about a year workup and then after that, you're deployable. Um, so it's a two, full two-year training cycle um, and it's difficult. It's intellectually challenging, it's physically challenging and it's emotionally challenging. Um, the attrition rate has been consistent since John and I went through back in the 80s, right? It was 
85% of the people who try do not make it. 15% do. And we've done a lot of things. And that's 85% to be clear that started the process, not that just applied. No, no. It's uh, If 100 people start on day one, 15 people graduate after two years. Right. That's fundamentally what, what the math works out to be. And we've done a lot to try to change that. We've gone, okay, let's go focus on the type of people we're recruiting and let's give them some workup time. And uh, we've got all kinds of um, professional grade physical trainers, people who are weight trainers and cardio trainers and medical people and all kinds of stuff. And we surround all these young folks with all this talent so that we go, okay, we're going to give you every opportunity to graduate. We don't want guys to quit. We don't want people to fail. But the fact is, is it is difficult. And um, even though we've surrounded them by all this stuff, we feed them the right foods. We, we, we work on their schedules. We measure all kinds of physical attributes. Um, at the end of the day, the numbers are still about the same. Wow. If you put a hundred people in the front, you get about 15 people out of the back. Um, and that just speaks to the difficulty of the job. Uh, I hope I've given you some insight into the question you asked. No, that's, that's very helpful. And, and, and your experience, uh, both of you, is it um, just uh, those who don't make it, I'm sure there's, there's no shame in trying and missing. Is it huh. just, is it just, it's just too intense. So they, what, what, what is your perception of those folks that you thought, wow, I'm really surprised that guy didn't make it. Like what, what, what do you think causes the 85% to be unable to, to continue? I think many people don't truly understand what they're getting into. And that's, that's not just with our job. It's with all the yeah. specialty sure. jobs, if you will, they, they get into it and, <clears throat> you know, you watch a movie and it's easy to watch, you know, um, an Audie Murphy movie and go, man, I wish I could be Audie Murphy. That dude's an absolute hero. Right. Well, watching the movie, wanting to be Audie Murphy and putting in the work to be Audie Murphy are different things. Yeah. So when you show up, and every day is a grind um, that wears on you. And you start wondering, do I really want to be here? Uh, and the second you start wondering that and it starts seeping in, uh, eventually it takes a toll on you. Um, and that there are, there are, there's a percentage of people who physically can't do it. Their bodies either break down too much and, and they're always injured um, or they can't get to that last pull up or that last, uh, you know, Meet, meet the run times or whatever it is. But for the most part, in my experience, um, people just don't truly understand what they're in for because you're going through 24 months of training. And what that is, is it's not one 24 month school. It's, a, it's 24 months of individual schools. And when you show up to a school, you're starting over. So day one, you show up and you're, you're a new guy and they, they're treating you like you're a new guy and pushing you hard to see if you really want to be there. You know, but you know, midway through the course and end of the course, it starts getting easier because you understand the expectations and the, the cadre know you and they start treating you like a more mature adult. You graduate that course and you start all over again at the next course you go to. Right. Each course is a little bit different. Like Army Airborne School, three weeks, not a difficult course. So there's not a whole lot of emotional fluctuation there. Uh, but when you show up at Combat Control School or you show up at uh, the dive course um, or you show up at the assessment selection course, those are the three hardest courses in the pipeline. Um, and not only are they physically and emotionally and, and uh, intellectually demanding, they're long. So while you're there, you're just under this constant pressure. Uh, and I think that pressure just gets to people. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I, as, a, as a, I grew up in the water as a diver, as a swimmer, right? Just reading the description of being in the pool and having to force you back underwater to make you learn how to control your panic. I would have watched that right there. 
<laughs> and I think that's that's kind of common, right? In terms of you could be good at any one of these things, but there might be something that no matter how hard you work to overcome it psychologically, you're just not going to. And that's well, there's, there's also there's also what people discover about themselves, guys. You know, inevitably you're going to learn about yourself as you go through this, and and realize what you can do. And you know, we all have those moments. Mike and I, you know, at different uh, different times, were uh, each instructors at our school, and you know, having been a product of those programs. And then, you know, being the ones creating the products, you know, you've seen this over and over. You're going to learn, you're going to realize I can, you know, I'm not going to name names. I can think of people that barely got through the school and turned out to be massive studs, you know, within two years of being out in the field. Hmm. So you get all, you just are, there's no easy way to predict this as the person going into it or, you know, as the person trying to produce those people. Right. And that, that I think has got to be constantly fascinating because we, the, the American taxpayer invests a huge amount of money in training you. Right. Uh, and it's certainly not, they have led the path for years in statistics and trying to get predictability. And Daniel Kahneman writes about that in, in relation to the work he did with the Israeli army. Right? Everyone's looking for greater predictability. Everyone's trying to figure out on day one of these hundred, who's going to make it. And yeah. that's, I guess that's part of the complexity of the human that you're just not going to predict it with any degree of confidence. Yeah. So um, appreciate that. And people can learn more about this, obviously, um, in, in the future. But switching gears a little bit right now, the it'd be really interesting to hear about the work that Combat Control Association and the Combat Control Foundation is doing. Uh, you know, what, what was the genesis of the organizations? You know, what is what is the mission? Where are you? Where are you going? So I'll, uh, I'm slightly older than, than Mike. I'll, I'll start. Uh, <laughs> I remember when the Combat Control Association was created uh, in, in the mid-80s. Uh, it is a 501c19 you know, veterans members organization for combat controllers. We, we also you know, have uh, associate membership uh, to spouses and honorary members to those who have you know, supported us in, in very important ways. Um, and I'm going to, uh, that's, that's the one plug I, I want to get started with is mm-hmm. that's been around since the mid eighties. And there was, there were always big expectations, but it was also always a volunteer organization. Uh, you know, being military volunteers, you can only accomplish so much because of the challenges of just, you know, day-to-day life in the military. Um, and, and actually let me, let me just turn it back to Mike and talk, uh, Mike, talk about the, the association. I do want to make one last plug. I was remiss earlier mentioning, you know, not only was Mike the most senior chief when he retired, uh, he's a unique individual in having four combat jumps uh, to his credit. So he really speaks from a wealth of experience. Some of the stories that he's telling you, he's leaving out the part that he was one of the guys on the ground. So Mike, back to you. Yeah, I appreciate it, John. Thank you. Um, So as John said, the Combat Control Association has been around for decades, and it's been a great members organization. What that means is um, the leaders throughout time have done a good job of saying, okay, how do we get people together and how do we celebrate who we are? And, and, and we've done a really nice job of that internally. Um, what, we, what we learned over time, though, is we're not doing as good a job of taking care of our people. We, you know, our job is dangerous. Jumping, diving, riding motorcycles, fast jumping, all those things are dangerous. Just walking through the woods can be dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. So we have an incredibly high injury rate, uh, whether it's in combat or training. Um, and what we would inherently do is we'd go, Hey, this guy got hurt, right? A guy broke his back faster. And we would send out an email to all of our members. Hey, Johnny got hurt. We need to do something to take care of him. And we'd raise money internally, right? Everybody passed around the hat. We 
put it all in a bucket. We'd go, okay, we have $30,000 to take care of Johnny. The problem is, is you get a different response each time somebody gets injured based on the perception of their injury, uh, based on how many people know them, based on the economy at the time, right? We just, right. we didn't have this very robust system to take care of our folks. And, and we owe our folks better than that. The, the Department of Defense and the Veterans Administration, while they do an okay job, there are a lot of gaps. Uh, and examples of that are, if one of our guys is killed in combat and his parents got divorced, well, the military will fly biological mom and biological dad to Dover Air Force Base to receive their son. But stepmom, who's really acted as his mom for the past five years or 10 years, well, the military doesn't acknowledge her. Wow. Um, so how do we get her there, right? And again, what we do is pass around the hat, we get mom there. That's a single example. There's lots of medical examples and other things where well-intended systems just don't take care of everything that needs to be taken care of. Um, so we recognize we need to do something different. We need to raise money institutionally. So while the association has been around for a long time and we did a good job of internally handling small issues, we just weren't equipped to handle bigger issues. So then we stood up the foundation and I'll pass it back to John because that's where John comes in. And, uh, you know, we, we stood that up a couple of years ago. We had moderate success in 2021 and we're looking to grow it. And John is going to lead us through that endeavor. Oh, thanks. That's good. That's a good background. With uh, with thanks, Mike. With uh, with a lot of support from a, a, an incredible board, um, yeah. This is if people haven't picked up already on this. Uh, it, there's a symbiotic relationship here. Uh, the foundation doesn't stand by itself. The association doesn't stand by itself. And you know, we were created. The foundation was created legally September 2018. Um, it's a 501c3. And so it can, you know, that, that's unique among nonprofit organizations, and it's truly for charitable works. Um, the relationship between the two, the way we're structuring this, because it really is a startup, uh, and, and we're taking a very business-like approach. I've got a, a, you know, I'm not the only one, but I've got a, a healthy business background since I left. And, and uh, luckily, we're very much alike minds about run it like, a, you know, a, a strong business. And, and so that's the path that we're on. The, uh, the relationship is the foundation is the one to provide the solutions, write the checks, you know, raise the funds uh, into it and, you know, have a sustainable model. So we don't have these, you know, one off ring the Claxton. Hopefully we get enough to help everybody that's in need at the moment and we can have a more sustainable model going forward. So what does that mean to the association? Well, the association you know, again, because the foundation is taking such a prominent position, it's going to have to take a look at itself a little bit. But really, its most important point is to be the voice of the community. You know, by definition, you know, associate uh, with uh, everybody, not just the combat controllers, active duty, but retired, former uh, veterans, whether they're injured or not, their families, Gold Star families. Uh, you know, that's its big C community is how I like to refer to it. And so on the one hand, you've got the voice of the community, and that takes a lot of work to stay in touch. And by the way, it's not just people in the U.S. We have people around the world. Right. So, uh, you know, the, that's, that's really what the association can bring to bear. Uh, it can also help define the needs, and the needs may change over time. And one of the things that we're doing, we're doing a lot of talking about the combat controllers. And I can tell you, you know, Mike and I are both very 
uh, uh, passionate about making sure we get the, the family input and specifically, you know, the spouses. Uh, and, you know, if you think the guys are something, wait till you meet our wives. It's, uh, <laughs> they're pretty incredible. Um, and we're, we're soliciting their, uh, their input and, you know, making sure we capture needs. And you always, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 60s now and I'm still learning things and being reminded of things about what the needs really are. Um, so that part of it is great. The foundation, you know, foundations aren't rocket science. And you can take a look and, and most of us do relatively the same thing. Sometimes it's a narrower focus. Sometimes it's a broader focus. But the way we're defining our programs, uh, you know, there's resiliency, health, education, and heritage. And that resiliency one is a very broad bucket. And that's everything from crisis, you know, uh, either individuals or families in crisis through to transition. You know, they've either retired out or they're separating out and we want to, you know, help them. And there's what's interesting about that transition part of the discussion is there's a lot out there, but it's also kind of the Wild West. And mm -hmm. that's one of the problems. And we talk to people, you know, Mike and I know, know guys recently retired and they say there's just so much. And you're, it's sort of daunting about, first of all, which of these programs is going to add value? You know, first of all, what are the good ones? Second of all, what do I need? And it's all new, uh, you know, on, on both, not just both sides, but it's more of a round table. There's lots of seats from different angles. And so, by that, you mean there are a lot of people out there who are focused on helping uh, people coming out of the military to transition into private sector life where right. you've gone in at 18, for example, this is all brand new. Right, right, right. And, you know, having been somebody who's hired veterans, um, you know, I can tell you that watching other people hire veterans, they, they don't always get it, especially if they weren't veterans. If they were, you know, they sort of break the code very quickly. But if they weren't, it can be a mystery and they're not always sure, you know, what, what the value is. And right. just on that point, as an aside, I would say, you know, the biggest value just to anybody out there considering or in a position to hire veterans, you know, the biggest thing is, is the value system. You know, you're going to get people that are going to be very focused. They're trainable. They are, uh, you know, focused on mission success. They know how to work with a team. Um, you know, everybody, it's, and we're like any family. We're as dysfunctional as any family. But we, we you know, we, we love and support each other regardless. And, and we know each other's, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies. And, and we deal with it. And we move on. But that's the value of, of having a military member or veteran, you know, on your team. But uh, yeah, the, back to the point, there's, there's lots of people all, you know, and it's all coming from good places. It's a wonderful problem to have. But, you know, not all of these resources are, first of all, you know, not everybody can be great. Uh, so you're never quite sure, you know, with some of them, what you're getting, uh, you know, getting or giving. Uh, and then, uh, you know, just, just the, the, there's no order to it. And so okay. as the individual looking at this and, you know, oh, I, this guy said this one and th that woman said that one and, you know, it, it can be daunting. So one of the things that we're trying to do is do our homework. And it's, you know, I've used the phrase where we're trying to connect the dots or fill the gaps. And that's what sometimes what this is really about. It's there's resources out there to help somebody, one of our folks in a certain situation. They just don't, they're not aware of it. So part of it's awareness and, and playing traffic cop a little bit. But we're also trying to do the study as opposed to just blindly saying, you know, for instance, we've had a modest scholarship uh, in the association for some time. And that's the foundation will be the provider of that scholarship going forward. But this is a good example of the relationship because the association 
will run the vetting process. And so that's how we get, you know, and they make the recommendation to the foundation who writes the checks and awards the scholarships. So, um, sorry, got, yeah, there's a lot going on there. Um, Actually, no, it's a good, a good pause a good, good, right. for, for a lot of our listeners, um, some of whom have had a military background, many of whom have not. Um, I, I, having worked with a lot of veterans, there's some things that I've noticed that are somewhat commonalities, uh, which are, are peculiar clerk quirks to someone who's not been in the military. Uh, but I remember one of the greatest conversations I ever had was with a World War II vet out in San Diego who was acting as a docent. I think another the aircraft carrier, the submarine out there they have for, for tours, right? It was years ago. He, at that time, he was in his 80s. And I, and I was talking to him, and I said, how many, how many years you were in? He was in like 25 years. So, so through World War II and then afterwards. And then he had you know 20 years in the private sector. I said, which did you prefer? He said, the military. I said, why? He said, it was really simple. I could look at someone and know whether I had to listen to them or they had to listen to me. <laughs> and out in the private sector, it's completely and utterly unclear. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no idea. It's this office politics, all this nonsense. I don't know who's really in charge. Um, and I found it very funny, but also I, I did a lot of work with a good friend who'd spent a lot of time uh, in the Australian uh, military um, uh, for, for about 15 years. And afterwards, he was a consulting. And it took a few years for him to understand that when someone who is superior to you, like the CEO of the company you're advising, he wants you to tell him what he's doing wrong, right? He doesn't yeah. want you to say yes because he's more important. And it was, one of, it was one of the funniest quirks I dealt with. Turned out to be a brilliant guy, became a teacher. But for a while, it was really hard for him. He couldn't criticize the client who had hired him to criticize him. But it was, it was a fascinating that's that's actually and that that's a key point. That's one of the things you know. Uh, staying on the transition topic for a moment, sometimes uh, we are our we are our own worst enemy because we've been trained in this. You know, now special ops is a little bit different because we you know that they, they we challenge each other and you know the senior subordinate relationship can be murkier. Yeah. Uh, to be polite about it. Sometimes it, it, it almost disappears. It never fully disappears, but you know, you can be very uh, informal because uh, military leadership recognizes, you know, I may not be the smartest guy. And at the very least, all of us contributing is better than me just pretending I, I have all the answers. Uh, but generally speaking, military people, especially when they go into a strange environment, like the business world, the private sector, you know, they're going to say, okay, I'm here to support the team and, you know, whatever the boss wants. And I'm here to, you know, salute and move out. Um, but as we know, in the business world, that's, it's not that clear. And, uh, you know, to your point, you know, and having been, you know, a senior executive and frankly, almost beating on people, you know, tell me what's going on. It's, <laughs> as Jack Welsh used to say, as the guy at the top, you're the, or the woman at the top, you're the last to know, you know, oh, yeah. and, and it's your constant battle to try and not be the last person to know what's going on. And that's it's funny because some of the most successful corporate cultures I've worked in, I mean, they're brand names, so I'm not going to give them obviously, but um, that has worked really well, right? The, the One of the first things I learned when I started working at a really uh, huge bank was um, the, the partner in charge said to me, people here don't get fired for bad news. They get fired for hide, hiding bad news, right? Like information yeah. flow is everything. I want to know what it is. I want objective reality. I don't want you to speak to me and hide from me. But that's incredibly rare. And even when in corporate situations, people say that sometimes even subconsciously, they don't actually mean it. Right. So that's that's what I think I go back to that guy on the, uh, the docent in San Diego who's like, sometimes they tell me something that they think they believe, but they don't. 
right? Yeah. Navigating that's very hard. But yeah, yeah. Like I said, is that kind of your familiar experience with how people have migrated out of you know the challenges they face? They're not challenges. Yeah, I think those challenges exist. I, I will tell you uh, with uh, with combat controllers, uh, you know, you know, and, and people who come out of our community. Um, Hiding information is the last thing that happens. They're actually sometimes maybe overly verbose, or overly verbose when they see things that they disagree with, right. uh, and maybe don't even take the time to understand why it may be different than what they're used to. Um, so, right. uh, you know, when, when we look at helping combat controllers transition using the foundation and the association, uh, one of the things that we do is we we look at what are the programs available and what which of those will be good for our types of people. Um, cause there's a lot of them out there. Some of them great, some of them not so great and some that are even well-intentioned and run well, but what they're offering won't help the combat controllers. So, um, you know, to John's point, we're, we're in the process of vetting a lot of peer organizations, whether it's somebody who helps them understand how to navigate the VA system or somebody who helps them understand how to get a job or somebody who even just helps them understand the difference between being in the military or the private sector, right? That's, that's a big deal. The, the drivers are different. While both private and military organizations have missions, they move to those missions. Uh, in the private sector, you're almost trained to be coin operated, right? What are your margins? What are your what's your revenue? All those types of things. In the military, you're not allowed to think about money. You're given a budget. You go do this thing. When you get promoted, you literally have to wait two more years before you're eligible for your next promotion, right? They're just they're different drivers. So helping our folks transition mentally from hey, you're in this mission-oriented uh, environment that is driven by lots of things other than money to when you get out here, there's a bit of every person for themselves. Um, and it's not meant to be conflict, but if you don't understand it, it can turn into conflict real easy. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you manage all that? So those are the types of programs we're looking very specifically to, to get our folks in so they, they can get in and get a good understanding of what they're getting into and then we can support them. It's a the transition is drastic. Getting out of the military, I tell people all this all the time, it's as contrasting as when you went in, right? You went in from living with your mom and dad to going to basic training and getting yelled at, and like your world is thrown into chaos. The inverse happens when you get out uh, because if you've been in 5, 10, 20 years, you are institutionalized. You are used to having all this stuff around you, and now you get out, and it is – you're literally a free agent. You can pick up a job tomorrow and then quit two days later. You have no obligation to anybody. Um, and that's a whole different world to be in. And we need to do a better job of setting our folks up to understand that so that they can be, um, again, intellectually, uh, physically, and emotionally challenged, but not set up for failure. Here's a quick question I think would be helpful at this point. So as you're vetting the programs that can be helpful or not to the, the folks you want to help, what are the criteria you're using? Like, what are you what are you probing on to see? Yes, this program has proven effective at helping, you know, folks leave the military and and get into jobs where they're there for more than three years at a time. Do you, do you have those criteria yet? Or are you more starting the process of trying to figure out how to evaluate? Yeah, it's it's as I say, we're still in startup mode, and you know, part of I mean, experience is the best teacher, and so what we're doing is part of this is you, you always start with who you know, you know, trusted resources, and you build out from there. As I mentioned earlier, we're trying to do our homework. For instance, uh, the first study that we're doing internally is in the education area. One of our board members, uh, he was in for uh, a couple tours, about eight years. 
got out. He's uh, recently retired as a you know 20-year educator. And so it's he's very passionate about it. He's two master's degrees. He's well qualified in it. And so he's taken the task uh, to do a study of what's available out there and then go back to the point of, you know, okay, what are the gaps? Because it may be giving scholarships isn't necessarily what we need to be doing, or we continue that, we need to increase it. Or, you know, what about trades? Maybe less about, you know, formal education, more about uh, trade schools. Uh, you know, and then when you look at the family members, uh, what about special ed support? Well, you know, these, there, there's, we, we don't know is the problem and we don't like not knowing. You're never gonna have perfect information, but we can at least do our homework. And so, uh, you know, and that's the kind of approach that we wanna take in each area and be somewhat methodical. We're also not wed to, okay, we, we have to build all this capability ourselves. You know, it's, I, I spent most of my business career in the outsourcing business. I've got absolutely no problem, you know, relying on others, but, you know, there has to, there's always some sort of definable metrics, measurements with their qualitative, quantitative, you know, feedback surveys. And, you know, we're asking some of our folks, recently retired folks, to step in, uh, you know, we'll do pilots with some of these organizations that we've never worked with before. They seem credible. They seem to have some good results. They may be uh, young in, in uh, their own cases, but uh, we're going to have some of the folks that are, you know, trusted entities and, and they'll go through it. It's sort of like auditing the course, if you will. And the good news yeah. is they're in a situation they may be able to benefit, but we're also going to get feedback that helps us answer that question, you know, that you're, that you're talking about. Hmm. Now, is there uh, any degree of interoperability with the VA? I mean, are there parts of the VA that that actively solicit insight and support and 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 you know guidance from a group like yours, or is it really just they are on autopilot doing what they've been told to do, and you're there to pick up where they're not picking up? Well, I'm just I would offer this. I would offer what we're doing with the VA is very similar to what we're doing with other organizations. We're going to, okay, what do they do well, and what don't they do well? Right. And there's both sides of that. And that's not a critique of the VA. It is a sure. big machine. A massive mission. So what, what, what helps us is to be a good referral agency, right? So we're raising money to take care of our folks. But the idea isn't, you know, we raise $100,000 to go spend $100,000. What we want to do is go, let's raise money. Let's build up our coffers so we can help people. But before we just start throwing money at problems, let's be a good steward of of what's going on is specifically information. And if we can refer people to help, let's do that. Right. Um, we have uh, one of our members who was paralyzed in a parachute jump and he needs some significant care right now. There's some things going on that, that we need to help him take care of. And while we were able to jump in and offer some money really quick, we were also able to get in and do some referral stuff. So there's an Air Force program right now that is looking at uh, trying to help him in areas where the VA has denied help. Uh, and again, that's not a critique of the VA. The VA has their rule book they've got to play by. So, uh, you know, he got told by the, told no by the VA. He asked for some support. We jumped in and supported. But then we also connected him with a, another military entity that may be able to fill that gap. So we're in right now, this week, we're in the throes of that research. Um, so when you talk about the VA, the way we look at our relationship with them is to go, let's understand what they do well. So when somebody comes in and says, I don't have something, we go, well, Maybe the VA can help you. Let's connect you with the right person. Uh, if not the VA, what other agency? And if not those other agencies, then where can we come in and help? Um, ideally, what we want to have is a combined approach. Yep, the VA can do this, we can do that, and let's we'll come to you with a holistic solution. So that is the approach we're taking with all agencies. The challenge is, to, to John's point, there are so many agencies out there, it's an impossible 
uh, it is a tidal wave of information. Right. Um, but that's okay. It's we will we will work through that, and we're not we're not navigating something that's never been navigated before. Our peer organizations have been navigating this stuff for a while, and uh, we're going to work with them and understand how they're doing it. And uh, we're just going to do better. But we definitely need to very specifically be out there taking care of our combat control brothers. They deserve it. That, that's awesome. I, I appreciate that. We could go on forever, uh, which I'd be delighted to do. Maybe we'll set up a second uh, second show uh, to talk about more specifics later. But I want to thank both of you uh, for your what sounds like incredibly exciting service uh, and for coming on and, and talking about both the Combat Control Foundation, the association, the work you're doing. Uh, I assume plenty of people who hear this are going to be inspired to give. I assume that's simple to do. There are websites to go to. If, uh, yes, combatcontrol.team. We, we keep it very simple. Uh, CCT is, has always been the, uh, the moniker. You know, one last thing, uh, plug, uh, if we're going to come to a close here, I'd like to put out there, and uh, we can make this in the form of a teaser, is that uh, the book behind you. Ah, yes. Uh, Alone <laughs> at Dawn uh, is being made into a movie. First of all, it's a very good read. It's a New York Times bestseller. Nominal book. Uh, Dan Schilling uh, is a retired combat controller. Um, with uh, Laurie Chapman, she uh, Longfords, she uh, was uh, John Chapman's sister. Uh, this book is twofold. It's it does two things. It tells the story of combat control, and it tells the story of John Chapman, Chappie, and uh, he's our first Medal of Honor awardee. Uh, the book is being made into a movie. It's got an A-list actor, A-list director. Jake Gyllenhaal is going to play John Chapman. Oh, excellent. Uh, Right now, we're, the uh, planned release is, uh, I think, third quarter of uh, next year. You know, some, we'll, we'll see how that goes, but it's definitely uh, on the path to uh, being made. Um, Mike, uh, you know, I, I, I only briefly knew John Chapman. We've met each other a little bit, crossing paths, uh, you know, back in the day. But, uh, you know, Mike, you, you knew him well. Yeah, I mean, John, John was a constant teammate. He lived his life a certain way, and uh, – the result of how he lived his life is displayed on the top of Takagar. But you know, anybody who's known John for a long time will tell you that doesn't surprise me. John was that way as a child. Um, so, you know, it's a wonderful story. It does do a great job of telling both in parallel John's story and the story of combat control. So uh, we're, we're pretty proud of, uh, of Dan, Dan Schilling and Laurie Chapman for writing it so well. And we're, we're excited for the movie to come out and, uh, yeah, thank, thank you for showing it and mentioning it. Oh, yeah, I loved it. I, I've, I've got a, a review coming out shortly about it. It was fan, fantastic. I, and I would ask that that uh, I think you have the link. It's uh, uh, one of the things Dan did based on uh, declassified uh, drone footage. It's the first Medal of Honor action that's captured on video. Uh, and he has a condensed form that he narrates uh, available on YouTube. Um, yes. And, you know, it, no movie can match and you know, it's 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 incredible because in fact there were two acts, one you know saving the SEAL team he was assigned to, which that's those are their words, um, and then two the uh, when the the helos coming in you know to try and recover him, um, you know he he basically gave his life to protect the people on that helicopter coming in, so an incredible warrior, an incredible story, an incredible human. Ah, one of the most one of the most amazing things I've ever read without a question. Thank um, you. Thanks for your support. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, you know, I certainly, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to go on for forever and ever. I, are there, are there other things that, that we didn't cover that you think are really important to convey or we've kind of given the essence to people and we can get I to think, Mike, you're leaning for, go ahead. 
No, I, I have nothing. I was going to, you know, one, one final plug that www.combatcontrol.team. Um, there's a lot of information on there about who we are and what we do. Um, our, our guys are, are great Americans who, who sacrificed a lot and our job is to take care of them. That's awesome. I appreciate that. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we, we certainly will guide people to combat control that team. The more we iterate that, it'll drive it to their heads. We'll put it in the description and a link to the book as well, Learn It Done. Um, so again, thanks so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to having you on again, uh, perhaps prior to the movie uh, coming out. Maybe we'll have our little red, red carpet event. <laughs> oh, we're going to have events all over the country. Trust me, we're on a path. Absolutely. Th That's thanks awesome. Thanks, thanks a lot. Thanks, Christopher.